This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. A note of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, bringing you high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm Owen Michael. Billy Jensen joins us on the phone today while he's currently on his book tour. Hello, Billy. Hello, Owen. It's August 22nd, 2019 today, and our guest is Lonnie Coombs. Welcome, Lonnie. Thank you. a legal analyst and a former Los Angeles County criminal prosecutor who's covered big cases, including the trials of Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, and George Zimmerman, among many others. We were just discussing off-air some good news that you had about the current project that has just sort of come to fruition. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? This is amazing news, Owen. This is a a project actually I did a couple of years ago with Brian Banks. It was a show on Oxygen called Final Appeal where we went across the country and covered four cases where people were in prison for murder. They had been convicted and they were claiming that they were wrongfully convicted. Mm -hmm. So we looked into those cases and did what we could to see uh, first if we believed their story and then what we could do to see if we could help them with their case. Um, One of those people, Dante Sharp, actually just walked out of prison today for the first time in 25 years. Success. Amazing. It was just amazing. And reading the court transcript, um, a big part of it was based on two witnesses that we were able to get to cooperate with us and talk to us in our show. We interviewed them in detail. And so then they ended up being interviewed in front of the court, and that was the basis for new evidence. The judge said that granted him a new trial, and then the prosecution said, yeah, the prosecutor said, it's so old, we don't have any evidence, really, we can't try it again, so we're not going to try it again. So the judge said, you're going home today. Wow. So nobody had heard of these these, um, uh, witnesses before. They were never brought up, right? No, actually, the two witnesses, one of them was the 15-year-old girl who was the main prosecution witness in the case. Really, they hung their whole hat on that witness. Two years, immediately after the trial, she went back and recanted her testimony. But they would Mm -hmm. not believe her. And she kept saying, because we talked, she kept saying, why would they believe a 15-year-old enough to put someone in prison for life, but then they wouldn't believe her 
when she said he should be out because he was not guilty. And the, no, because right. their work was already done. Yeah, they know, were done washing their hands of it. And the second mm-hmm. one was actually the medical examiner. So this was huge. The medical examiner who testified for the prosecution about how the guy died, what she didn't realize is that the prosecution was saying in their theory, based on this 15-year-old witness, that the uh, victim was facing the defendant, Dante Sharp, at mm-hmm. the time he was shot. Well, it was very clear from the medical examiner he was shot through the arm across his body. So when I interviewed her on a, on camera and explained to her the prosecution case, she was like, no, that's not right. He's not guilty. And she, it was just like, it was huge. Yeah, and, and uh, Dante's attorneys had been trying to get her to come talk to them for, I think, 10 years, uh, uh, you know, an extraordinary amount of time. And she had not done it, and then she did it with us, and then she did it in court in front of the judge, and that was huge. Right, and that's another thing, that's another lesson to be learned about um, uh, television. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you guys probably made that happen, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> you know, the show's over uh, just because justice takes so long, but, um, you know, and, and everything isn't going to be wrapped up in a little bow within the time period that you're actually working on a TV show. But that's fantastic yeah. news. How, uh, how common is it uh, when you have teen testimony like this that uh, is it sort of case by case as far as they're going to hold on to the original statement and then not believe the if there is something following up? Or is this a sort of, uh, would you describe this to convenience in this particular uh, instance? Yeah, I, I think a lot of times when a witness wants to recant later, it's very looked on very dubiously. However, mm-hmm. you have to look at the original statement and how credible was it and how much corroboration was there. And there was no corroboration for this statement. That's why I was shocked in the first place. And when you look at the context of this young woman at the time, she had just gotten out of a mental hospital. She had a, a, a very unstable family life. She had bonded to the detective of the murder case, um, called him, you know, uncle or daddy, daddy. Oh, best. Yeah. Oh, and so definitely some reasons. Yeah. And so she has been carrying this burden. When she talked to us, she was so emotional. She says, I live through every, every birthday of mine, every birthday of his. I, I cannot enjoy my life because I am in an emotional wow. prison just like he is. Wow. That's fantastic news. Congratulations. And speaking of which, that's uh, the show is called Final Appeal. And mm-hmm. you did that. You co-hosted, co-hosted that with Brian Banks right. on Oxygen, right? Yes. Um, Brian Banks, for some of our viewers and listeners, uh, he's got his own story out now as a major motion pictures out in theaters. Um, that particular case itself, let's talk a little bit about that case in case you don't know some of the details of that, uh, dear listener, dear viewer. Uh, Brian Banks was a, uh, he was a high school football star on his way to college and uh, he was regarded as an NFL prospect here in Southern California down in Long Beach. Uh, went to Long Beach Polytechnical High School. Incidentally, Snoop Dogg and Cameron Diaz's uh, alma mater as well. Mm. Not that that matters. Um, so Brian was uh, 16 at the time. He was falsely accused of rape. This is one of those cases where he was facing decades in prison. It was sort of a he said, she said case. Um, His attorney advised him to take a deal from the prosecution, plead no contest to this case, and uh, serve a lesser sentence. So uh, I I also read a report this morning that – Essentially, the attorney thought he wouldn't serve any time, that it was going to be strictly probation. probation. Correct. Uh, but instead, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, I think six? Uh, six years, excuse me. He served five, and then he was released, or five and change, and then was released on probation, if I have that correctly. Um, With an ankle monitor. Right. Right. And was still registered as a sex mm-hmm. offender at that time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that was back in uh, 2002 was when he was uh, convicted. 
he, you know, he was all set. He had verbally committed to USC and he was going to play football, the whole thing. But uh, a 15 year old classmate, speaking of 15 year old witnesses, she testified uh, or she had accused uh, him of kidnapping her and raping her. Came out later that she may have been worried about what her mother would have thought or something along those lines because they he agreed that they went to sort of make out in, an, in a make out area in, in the school. But later that day, he was arrested and, and uh, they, they charged him right away. Uh, he was tried as an adult, uh, so he did take the plea. He took the plea deal. He was sentenced to six years. Then um, she reached out to him in 2011 while he was out on probation, which I always thought was strange. Um, so strange. She reached out to his accuser, who was uh, basically a year, year and a half younger than him, reached out to him on Facebook and made a friend request in 2011. So he got her to admit on camera, essentially he had gone and got some help with a, a private investigator, right? And uh, they managed to secretly tape her talking about how it, it was a false accusation and it was taken too far, et cetera. They had this long conversation. But the video is inadmissible because it's this is a two-party state. And I, I think that that's uh, obviously very state-to-state. State, but here, that kind of stuff is not uh, admissible in court. But that was enough for the California Innocence Project to, to get involved and then they gathered evidence and essentially within what two years uh, they reversed it a judge reversed it uh, California excuse me the Los Angeles County uh, Court of Appeals uh, overturned the case actually fully exonerated him fully exonerated <clears throat> eventually say. which is amazing you know it took so long after you have the victim come you know on tape saying I made the whole thing up essentially mm-hmm. it still took a long time for him to get through the whole process. As a prosecutor, when you hear stuff like that, if, if it's your case or even if it's just uh, it happening in the system as you're working on other things, what's sort of the takeaway when you hear about something like this? You've got a clear uh, almost confession on video, but it's inadmissible. You have to be sort of a scientist about it. You just uh, we can't. It's the fruit of a what do you call it? Fruit of a poison tree. No, I think that uh, I think that you have to um, you know do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, so maybe they taped it and they weren't supposed to tape it. But you've got to do the right thing. If you have someone saying that they, you know, lied on the stand, you've got to follow that up. Mm-hmm. Do, do your own work. Do mm-hmm. your own legwork on it. But you don't just ignore it because, oh, you know, there's a legal technicality mm-hmm. that, you know. Have you, uh, have you had much experience with the California Innocence Project? No, my first um, contact with Innocence Project um, attorneys is through the show Final Appeal, which was Brian's idea to do that show. Um, he was the creator of that show because once he was exonerated, sure. he said, I want to help sense. other people. I'm going to work. And he was working with Innocence Project um, attorneys across the country. And so that's when I started to meet them is through that show. Mm-hmm. I worked with the California Innocence Project. Go on. For one of my first uh, stories over there uh, was the uh, the Kimberly Long case. And that oh. was that was the California Innocence Project. And that was the case of Kimberly Long, who was um, um, sentenced to uh, 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 that she committed. Uh, that Kimberly Long was convicted of murdering her boyfriend uh, at the time, but there was no physical evidence uh, connecting her to that, that uh, crime. Ozzy Condit is that his name? Ozzy, Con- yeah, that's right. And um, uh, we, we, you know, um, the, the story that we did was very helpful in getting her at least out of jail for a new uh, trial. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the California Innocence Project is interesting because California they were so ahead uh, on the DNA stuff that mm-hmm. now. 
they're, they, you know, pretty much all of the, from what they say, this is what the California Innocence Project says, is that all of the DNA uh, exonerations have been exhausted and now they are going after cases that doesn't, don't have the DNA. Meanwhile, you, when you look at every other DNA project or almost every other DNA project from other states, they're still doing the DNA stuff. So just California just shows how, how, how ahead of the curve California mm-hmm. was is that they've exhausted all those now and now they're going for other cases. Uh, in this Brian Banks case, the, uh, the, the accuser's mom sued the school district and got a $1.1 million settlement uh, after the fact. The school district sued. Uh, they, they sued the family back, and they won a two point six million dollar judgment. Uh, I think that they haven't. Most news outlets have not been able to track down the accuser. Um, she's still out there, but uh, it's you know it's a fifteen year old girl, and it's uh, almost twenty years later. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, the good news is uh, after that was fully exonerated, uh, Brian got uh, he got calls. He got calls from six different NFL teams, including from the Seattle Seahawks' his own. Uh, Pete Carroll, who was the USC coach who recruited him originally back in uh, 2001. Brian got uh, three tryouts or tryouts for three different teams. He played for four games for the Atlanta Falcon, Falcons in 2013. Then he went to work for the NF, uh, for NFL operations. Excuse me. He's now a public speaker and doing projects like the one that you've just worked on with him. And uh, now there is a major motion picture out right now. Uh, I haven't great. seen it. Did you see it? It's great. Yeah, Brian took me to one of the premieres that they had, mm-hmm. and it's. It is fantastic. I highly recommend it. And he has a book also, which What's is also it called? great. It's called The Brian Banks okay. Story, I think. Okay. Sounds, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh, no kidding. Uh, and by all accounts, the nicest guy in the world and, and, and not bitter and, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. It, it is amazing. It's interesting. Before I met him in regards to the show, I actually saw him in New York. Just It was a few months after he had been exonerated, and he was there with his attorney and I think speaking to Ann Curry at this restaurant. And I saw him, and I thought, wow, you know, what do you do now? I knew his story. It was fascinating to me that, you know, the whole Facebook thing. What do you do now? Are you bitter? I mean, he's so young. He has his whole life ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Um, what's he going to do with his life? And I, I actually got to meet him very briefly then, and I was just so struck by his presence and his um, sense of calm and peace within himself. And I thought, wow, I, I can't wait to see what happens next. And then I ended up being able, it was just an amazing blessing to be able to do that show with him and to watch what he's done, uh, the, the way he's brought the spotlight to so many other people that were in. Paying it back, paying yeah. it forward, that kind of thing too. And yeah. Um, yeah, and by all interviews that I've seen with him, he's, he's very grounded and very, very humble, down-to-earth uh, fellow, which uh, is amazing considering the consequences. Um, so... Good luck uh, to him and the movie and all the rest of the projects going that way. Uh, moving on, let's talk about uh, the case of Lance Mason. Is a uh, judge or a former judge, I should say, former Cuyahoga County judge in Ohio, which is basically uh, the, it encompasses the city of Cleveland. Uh, Lance Mason was 51 years old. Um, he's been a judge in that county since the 1990s. Uh, he stopped being a judge, for which we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, in 2015. This week, Mason pleaded guilty uh, to aggravated murder, murder, felonious assault, violating a protection order, and grand theft. He's accused of killing his ex-wife last year, Aisha Frazier. Shaker Heights is a city in the Cleveland metro area. Uh, last year, November 17th, police were called to a home there. They found Aisha Fraser, 45 years old, a sixth grade teacher. She was dead in the driveway. She had been stabbed to death. They were uh, ex-spouses, uh, I should say. 
uh, prosecutor said Lance Mason uh, was lying in wait for her at the sister's house, at his own sister's house where uh, Aisha was dropping off her kids. Uh, the sister was inside the house during the attack. He heard the, She heard the attack. She called 911. You could hear screaming in the background. The kids were there. Uh, he then apparently came into the house and said, uh, I'm so sorry. Then he tried to escape. He rammed a police cruiser with his SUV while he was trying to get away. Uh, he seriously injured an officer while that happened uh, this week. And, and also, uh, him saying, I'm so sorry, was actually picked up on the 911 call, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so before we get too far into it, if you've got a 911 call like that and you've got uh, somebody, do they take it for uh, – take it on the face value that this is him speaking and saying, I'm so sorry? Or if I'm the defense, am I bringing in somebody and saying – that's somebody else talking. You can't prove that we need voice analysis or is this... Uh, well, you could try. It depends on, you know, the rest of the case. But this is so strong. They've got the sister who's standing right there who can sure. say that's who it was. And um, He hit a cop. Yeah. And then, he's, and then he's running out of the door. Him. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Uh, so this week he... It was during the, the plea hearing. And so he pleaded guilty. He said he wanted to take responsibility and spare his family from the trial. His daughter was uh, was was probably going to have to testify in court. She was the oldest one that was, uh, was there. Uh, as you can see in this photo, he made his plea deal or his plea in an orange prison jumpsuit uh and in handcuffs uh so this particular case it's a mandatory minimum as mm-hmm. i understand it is mandatory it's it's uh, mandatory that he gets life in prison but he could excuse me the minimum is life in prison with a chance of parole in 20 years the maximum is life in prison no parole and it's up to the judge there i wonder not to put you too far on the spot but you're out of the business a little bit what do you think about mandatory minimum sentencing and things like that? Uh, obviously, it varies state to state, but some of the judge's discretion, all he's got here is basically, does this guy get parole or not? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the uh, mandatory minimums have been um, a bad situation in some cases, especially like on the drug uh, charges mm-hmm. and things like that. But in a case like this, I think it's absolutely appropriate for the, what this guy did and based on his history. Um, and they actually have the choice of can he have parole after 20 years or sure. life without as opposed to just, okay, it's life without. So mm-hmm. there is actually a little bit of um, maneuver space there for the judge in the sentencing. What what do you think would make the judge, would it be about the contrition now or would it be about the circumstances of the actual incident that would lead the judge to decide one way or the other whether probation was a lot was a uh, merited here. You mean at parole because he's going to go to prison. Yeah, pardon me. Parole. It, it really depends. I mean, they look at the, both the aggravating and the mitigating circumstances. So the one one little thing he has in his favor is that he's pled guilty early. Mm-hmm. All right, and he pled to everything because the DA said we're not even giving you a deal here. You know, we're, right. we want you to plead to everything. That's right. rare, and they and so he pled to everything. So that's the one thing in his uh, mitigating. But as far as aggravating factors, I mean, he has a history here mm-hmm. of abusing this woman. Mm-hmm. He went to prison before. He should have gone a lot longer, in my mind, mm-hmm. for the injuries that he inflicted on her. This is a, a obviously a um, history of abuse between him and his ex-wife. He did this in front of his children. Um, he had every chance based on the prior case that he had um, to learn his lesson where he really, really injured her badly to the point. I mean, he beat her up and, you know, she had to have facial reconstruction surgery. So, you know, this is a a serious case. And instead of, you know, going and getting the help he needs, the therapy or whatever, or move yourself out of the state or, you know, just stay away from this woman. He just came back and, and, um, you know, killed her. And the the fact that you're in law enforcement, I mean, you're a judge. Yes. Uh, I mean, 
it's it, it boggles the mind a little bit there. But uh, as you were referring to in 2014, uh, he did plead guilty to, to domestic violence. Uh, he basically beat the heck out of her in front of the kids. He slammed her face on a dashboard of his uh, SUV. He even bit her. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, she had to have facial reconstructive surgery. Uh, you know, this is a sixth grade teacher. Just to, it's it's awful. It sounds terrible. Uh, he was removed from the bench the, that year. After he was sentenced to two years in prison, he was released after serving about 10 months. Uh, and they had been married for, uh, for the last 10 years. So, um, yeah, I guess the only good thing here is that he spared the family and, and uh, owned up to it. And, uh, yeah, I was struck, too, by the fact that the, the prosecution said we're not offering a plea deal. Uh, everything's on, you know. The you plead thing. everything. Yeah. So they must have really had an open and shut case in, in this uh, particular yeah. thing. Yeah. Speculating, of course. Uh, okay. Well, so for our next uh, story, why don't we go over to New Jersey, talk about Tawana Hilliard. There's another law enforcement sort of legal uh, case here. It says Tawana, Tawana Hilliard, she's 44 years old. She'd worked as a paralegal in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, she worked in the civil division for nine years. And to get an idea of this paralegal working for U.S. Attorney's Office, you'd have to do a background check, uh, get that kind of stuff to be able to work in legal, work in law enforcement. But it's, um, uh, and you're doing a lot of the I don't want to say busy work, but you're doing the the, the, fi- the filings and you're doing uh, paperwork and things like that as paper as a paralegal. Is there is there anything that a paralegal does that maybe most people don't know what they do? Well, you you know when you're you're working in an office like this, you have access to the computer and to evidence and to information that's going on, which is why whenever you're working for one of these governmental agencies, they're supposed to do a very thorough background check on you because, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at like when there's informants and things like that and evidence in a case. You know, you know, bad cops, bad sure. paralegals, they can you know make things disappear or you know expose things that shouldn't be exposed. So, um, if you had, uh, if you were applying for this job, and this is not this particular case, but in general, if you had a son or a daughter who was involved in some sort of gang activity or something like that, even if they're on the younger side, 15 or 16 or something like that, is that a disqualifying factor? I would have thought, I don't know for sure. Um, I don't know if it's um, state by state, but I would definitely think they would look into it. I know when I applied to be a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles County, they did a very thorough background search. You know, they they look into your family, into your, you know, finances, things like that. So you pretty much turn into how detailed they actually go into it. I don't know. And whether it would disqualify you, I'm not sure about that either. Definitely. They're looking for conflicts of interest and any, yes. any type of stuff like this. Right. Yeah. So... In this particular case, this is a, a woman. She worked on the civil division for the last nine years, the U.S. Attorney's Office there. She pleaded guilty, uh, excuse me, she pleaded not guilty on Tuesday of this week to charges of witness tampering, obstruction of justice, conspiracy, and obtaining government information. She's accused of using her government computer to look up informants and potential witnesses in cases related to her son, who is a member allegedly of uh, a Bloods gang set on the East Coast uh, in the Brooklyn, Long Island area. Uh, which is a big area there, but uh, the gang apparently is pretty prominent. Uh, she's accused of passing along sensitive information to the gang, including in one instance of uh, in 2016, of outing a snitch at the request of a high-ranking gang member uh, above her son, uh, apparently. Um, that's pretty big deal. That's it's, huge. Uh, I mean, it's, you're talking about somebody's life there. 180 degrees from yeah. what you're supposed to be doing here. Right. And with, she's not, we would think that, 
you're not an idiot. You know what's going to happen if you if you put information out there. That's uh, right. Like this. So uh, she was caught. Um, but but the amazing thing is she was only caught because. Because the police were listening to conversations. Her son was in prison. She was having phone conversations, and those are not right. um, confidential. Which I, I can't believe it took that for them to catch this. It's, uh, A, the fact that that's what it took to catch it. Uh, B, that this woman who should know better because she works in the profession right. and also has probably seen Law & Order like the rest of us <laughs> right. 7,000 times. Uh, you know, you don't... Uh, don't say it on the phone. Exactly. Or, you know... Your code better be pretty bland uh, because, you know, they're listening particularly for this stuff. So the son uh, had been in trouble for – he's been in trouble on and off over the years. He had been in jail in New York State prison for a particular crime before this. Um, When this happens – so he got out. His name is Taekwon Hilliard. He's 28 years old. He's accused of robbing an AT&T store in New York in May of last year. This is after serving time for a previous uh, crime. Prosecutors say uh, uh, Taekwon Hilliard and his alleged accomplice led police on a high-speed pursuit before they crashed and they surrendered. They had apparently held up this AT&T store. They had uh, bound and gag- or taped up uh, some employees uh, leading to assault, essentially. Uh, so the co-defendant, who's unnamed, reportedly was cooperating with police and uh, she got wind of this and apparently from her son and uh, somebody else in jail or in the gang – determined that this was basically making her life, her son's life um, more difficult because of this. Um, so she found video footage of this co-defendant talking to police, making a police statement, and then she put it on YouTube, mm-hmm. which yet again, uh, how did you think you w- were going to get away with putting this, even if it was an anonymous account or something like this, like this is state's evidence. This is uh, pretty big stuff. How did you think this was not going to, nobody's going to notice that this got leaked, Mm -hmm. um, particularly if this guy turns up dead or, you know, messed up. And apparently that's what it did lead to. um, It led to threats. By the way, she titled it uh, on YouTube, NYC Brim Gang Member Snitching Part One. I mean, just flashing red lights here. Uh, not the best judgment, but uh, criminals often aren't. Um, so the co-defendant, his family, they received death threats from the gang, according to the FBI. Um, she had also given information. Uh, she had texted multiple people in the gang, according to court documents. Uh, the son also allegedly made threats um, to people that he knew that there were more videos to come out. So apparently there was other stuff. Right. Which is kind of stupid too because, okay, so there's a there's two snitches essentially. The accomplices is John Doe and Jane Doe. Right. So they release the Jane Doe first and then he writes like the FBI and the prosecution office and says, oh yeah, and there'll be another one too. Like, okay, well, ding, ding, ding. I mean, just put the red flag right over his head and maybe his mom's who's working in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Also, I feel like that's, you know, putting a red flag in front of the bull here. Like, we're just going to eat, we're, we're going to leak this a little bit. Here's, <laughs> you, you know, this is like WikiLeaks or something. Yeah. We're just going to put right. one little bit here just get your wet your appetite and then you're going to tune into my channel to to get right. next week like if you're going to do this do it all at once mm-hmm. although don't do it obviously i mean this yeah. is ridiculous it's so stupid in my opinion um so yeah they found out about this activity listening to a prison phone call dumb uh, mm-hmm. then they went and searched her house and they found a trove of evidence apparently a bunch of video evidence that she hadn't to taken action on it yet um so she it's you know allegedly if this stuff is true it's sort of red-handed um he's the son is serving 10 years for this particular store robbery and assault 
he was convicted and he's now charged in similar counts to moms about uh, conspiracy and um, uh, dealing with uh, sensitive information, that kind of thing. So, I mean, this is his second, as far as I can tell, this is his second turn in prison. And then after this is probably not looking too good. So uh, just uh, bad, bad judgment all the, all the way around. Tawana Hilliard has been released on $750,000 bond. She's ordered not to have any contact with the son or the gang. And she's wearing an ankle monitor. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. Um, as you said, they only knew about it because of the recorded phone call. So um, lots of bad judgment here. But uh, I have to say, I don't have to say. It seems to me maybe there was a little bit of a, a missed, a couple of missed signs here on the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I have to wonder whether there's a sort of an internal review going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is yeah. that, are they going to be looking at their processes right. now and their background checks and this? Yeah. It, it has. To, they have to be. Yeah, I would be really surprised if they're not doing. And that every because, department in the in the yeah. country, you know, this is bad, bad, bad right. press. Right, it's exactly what you don't want to have. You yeah, know? and starting with those background checks, like you said, Billy. I mean, that's where you start it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, the, and then maybe yep. have some security cameras in the office when people are like taking videos. And maybe, I mean, maybe. Yeah. you'd think they were already there. But. I, I, that's what I'm saying. You know, in a, in a corporate job, you kind of half expect that they're doing keyboard trackers and you know checking mm-hmm. out your screens and all that kind of stuff. So you would think at the legal level that they'd yeah. be monitoring that kind of thing. Although, as we know, sometimes the private sector is much more well funded than yes. than mm-hmm. the, the infrastructure of of state and local and municipal and that kind of thing. So, so you know, maybe we can get a little juicy boost there. Uh, a little boost there. So uh, we'll bring you more when we know about that particular case. Uh, this next one's this next one's a heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Emma Hernandez. On Monday this week, nine-year-old Emma Hernandez was riding her bicycle in Detroit in her neighborhood when she was attacked and mauled by three dogs in an alley at about uh, 4 p.m. It was uh, reportedly just steps from where she lives, according to the USA Today. Um, she was attacked by these dogs. Neighbors tried to help the girl. Uh, several people saw the thing happen. Police said somebody had thrown a brick at one of the dogs. They were trying to get the dogs off, but uh, it, it, she was overwhelmed. Uh, a Detroit Fire Department commissioner said neighbors were shooting at the dogs when EMTs arrived. Uh, we were performing emergency medical services under gunfire, said this uh, spokesman, which is uh, quite a uh, quite a scene. Um, I can't imagine how that was was helpful to begin with um so the this poor little girl reportedly suffered severe traumatic injuries um including a, a really bad one on her neck uh ambulance took her to the hospital but she was uh, pronounced dead there uh shortly after she arrived she was just one week away from starting fourth grade mm-hmm. uh it kills me so one dog was hit by a bullet but all three dogs did survive they've been impounded they're being evaluated this week and uh the dogs are described as pit bulls. Our viewers and listeners will have strong opinions one way or the other about pit bulls, but uh, we're just telling you like it is. This is three pit bulls that did this, allegedly. I don't, I don't have to allege it if it's a dog, uh, although there is a person under arrest uh, in connection to this. So Detroit Animal Control did say in a statement, uh, quotes, due to the severity of this case, it is very likely that the dogs will be euthanized. The dog's owner, an unidentified 33-year-old man, was arrested. The dogs had reportedly slipped between two fences, according to WDIV. As of yesterday, they had not received a warrant. Wayne County prosecutors hadn't received a warrant from Detroit police. What does that say to you, Lonnie? I just think they're gathering information. Look, these are really interesting cases. Um, In this case, the father apparently 
a week before had talked to the owner of the dogs and said, hey, look, you need to, you know, these dogs are just roaming around without leashes. There's not really a good fence around your yard. Um, and he was concerned about that. And so mm-hmm. it had been a week later and the owner hadn't done anything. This reminds me a lot of the um, case. Do you remember up in San Francisco back in 2001? Mm-hmm. Um, where when I moved out here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was she was it was the next door neighbor yes yes and in it was an actually apartment. yes and so the there was an attorney and her husband and they had this pit bull and then there was a woman next door and she had been you know these this pit bull was kind of you know intimidated and they talked about it mm-hmm. and then she got attacked one night one day i don't remember what it was but she got attacked by this pit bull and um she ended up dying yeah. from her injuries and it was a very unique prosecution they went after her for second degree murder and actually got a conviction on it. So she was sentenced to 15 years to life. Then the appellate court reversed it um, down to an involuntary manslaughter and got her out of prison. And then they appealed it again. It went up again. And they put back the second-degree murder charge. So she's back in prison. She's still in prison. She just came out for parole recently, and it wow. was denied. So she's still in prison. Based on not only the fact that she had been you know, warned a, a number of times by people that it was dangerous, but also apparently as the attack was going on, she really didn't do anything to try and, you know, pull the dog back. So in this case, we know that the owner had a warning ahead of time, but it sounds like he wasn't there at the attack or mm-hmm. nobody talks about if he tried to stop these dogs mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have this, you know, visual in your mind of these these um, neighbors, like so desperate to get these three dogs off this little girl, like they're shooting guns at it. I mean, anything to stop those dogs. Oh, yeah, it t- totally makes sense. And, you know, the other, int- I mean, you can just imagine how awful this scene was. And I know that firefighters and EMTs who had responded to the incident, they're actually receiving trauma counseling this week it's, because it's, of what they saw. Yeah, apparently her neck was uh, was received quite a bit of trauma. I don't want to describe it too much, but yeah. uh, it was it was very bad. Um, the the San Francisco case didn't it happen in her doorway? Yeah, like in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Of yes, this apartment? in the apartment building. Yeah, yeah, which is which is awful. But then on top of that, here you've got this alleyway, which is even more of a helpless feeling, I suppose. You know. You've got mm-hmm. all this room, and you can't do anything about three dogs that are yeah, set right to do this, you know, the, yeah. the animal instinct. So, uh, yeah, as you say, uh, Emma's father had already argued with this owner uh, of the dogs a week earlier about this. I have read reports today that other people had complained uh, about these dogs in the past, but they couldn't track down any police reports, so it's unclear whether there was right. that. But this yeah, is there was enough. People, they were, there, there, was, there were reports, CNN was reporting that they were – that uh, uh, people had, had claimed that these dogs are roaming around without leashes mm-hmm. uh, or a fence to keep them in their own yard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so I was looking at the, 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 the area that's happened, too. It's a, uh, it a little bit of a rundown neighborhood, a little bit uh, dilapidated, if you will. So, so obviously, older fences, older, older infrastructure, that kind of thing. It makes sense. But three pit bulls. Some people are pit bull enthusiasts. Also, there's, you know, it could be security kind of a thing that they have this. But as a dog owner, it is your responsibility right. to to a to keep them corralled in in, mm-hmm. a, in and under control. And especially if you have a dog who is aggressive or that kind of thing, you better be able to control that dog. If you can't do that, mm-hmm. you know, so so as I said, the the man's still being held. Prosecutors are waiting on the warrant from Detroit police. Uh, I don't have any new information this morning today about this, but uh, we'll keep you updated when we know more. Um, it's speculation, but uh, it sounds to you like there's something. There, there may that. be some criminal yeah. action against yeah. this man, huh? Yeah. There will be probably. Okay, so you know what we get, Owen? 
Let's talk about what we get, uh, Bill. We get comments. You know, True Crime Daily is the largest true crime um, Facebook page and uh, also the largest YouTube page. So we get a lot of comments. And there was a story that uh, happened yesterday that uh, got a lot of people riled up. The headline, Kansas City Police called about man carrying topless woman. Kansas City Police responded to a number of strange calls um, that was not <laughs> calls Tuesday morning, left police saying not what we expected going into that. So according to police, they began receiving a number of emergency calls about a man carrying around a topless unconscious woman near the 12th bridge around 1130. Now it turns out 1130 a.m. 1130 a.m. This is broad daylight, if you will, which makes it even better. Kansas City police sent multiple officers to check on the woman's safety. According to police, the man said he had found a life-size female doll in a dumpster behind a restaurant and carried her into the woods. He was told not to carry it around in public anymore, according to the police call notes. Now, this part of this incident was captured on traffic cameras, but also people were kind of, you know, calling, um, uh, you, you know, shooting stuff. And Thank people goodness. Were you know what? So several calls thinking a topless woman was in trouble, but no one went to try and rescue her, said Edmund P., and uh, Billy uh, uh, S. responded with, Edmund, that's our society today. Um, a lot of people were just trying to, uh, you know, you know it, listen, it's one thing to call 911, but if you see somebody carrying around a, a, someone that you think is a topless woman that's unconscious, you should go do something as opposed to just calling 911. So. What I did notice about some of the comments, too, is the, a, a common thing that you'll see online is that several people reacted and said, like, how did nobody call this poor woman? Right. And she was, it's like, if you'll read beyond the headline, I, I encourage you. I mean, we have great contact, please, content. Yeah. Please uh, read all of it. A lot of people were under the impression that this man actually had a topless woman unconscious yeah. dragging her across the street and nobody did anything about it. It was. Uh, yep. Uh, it was uh, and some reacted. people were saying also that, uh, you know, well. no wonder people call the police. Um, don't judge people. The fact that someone called 911 is good enough, uh, Ms. Sang M said. And Tara A said, for all the people commenting, people were too coward to help, even though it was a doll. Calling the police is helping. I refuse to confront a possible crazy person, she said. He and didn't, and he course. didn't get uh, arrested. They just told no, no, him, no. You they know, just told him, don't do that again. Mind your business. Don't do this in the in public. You know, and take of this course, back to your tent Jacob R., which is, who is one of our top fans, said, you sure it wasn't Florida? This has Florida written all over indeed, it. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's just crazy everywhere. Crazy circumstances. Crazy stories everywhere. Uh, what else? Any other comments of note, Billiam? No, that's pretty much it. Well, that was a good one. Uh, well, Lonnie, thank you for joining us this week. Thanks um, for having me. Let's, uh, let's tell our viewers about, uh, check out our content on truecrimedaily.com and on Facebook. Uh, as Billy said, we've got one of the largest, uh, true crime Facebook page in the world. We're approaching 3 million. So if you're not uh, following us or, uh, or liking us, please, please come on over. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, of course. We've got, uh, near, we've got 3 million subscribers there as well. So join the club. Don't forget to download our weekly podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. If you have comments or questions about the show, call us up. Leave a message at 888-548-9758. We love hearing from you. We might run your comment on the air in a future podcast, so call us up. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crimes. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. 
Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.